The joy that fills each of our hearts this morning certainly is something that is a marvelous thing to consider, for as it leads our pathways in brightness and the considerations about us, we've been experiencing that which is the handiwork of God concerning the provision of the physical things of water and rain, and now as we look forward to the blessings of an hour devoted to the spiritual service of ourselves and worship to Him, what a wonderful thing indeed. As was mentioned in our announcements, we continue to think, of course, for those on our prayer list and to pray on their behalf and to do what we can to aid them in their time of difficulty and also to look forward to the event of our gospel meeting that shall begin shortly. Brother Watkins, as he will be with us, we understand, certainly will be prepared to deliver his lessons and to do his part. May we work feverishly and with great earnestness that we may have done our part to have individuals here necessary and needful of obeying the gospel, be it by rededication, be it by initial obedience, that our gospel meeting shall bring forth the fruits that we would desire it to bring forth. We began last Lord's Day morning a somewhat brief series of lessons on the Beatitudes found in the Sermon on the Mount. As we looked at the first three of those Beatitudes then, we came to appreciate that our Savior discussed and directly set before the minds of those who heard him then. Tremendous matters of greatness, of spiritual character. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed, in fact, are the meek. We came to realize that those three touched the very character of first, humbleness and lowliness in character, not a prideful and arrogant disposition. We also came to understand that the character of mourning was over specifically the mournfulness associated with the magnitude and the enormity of sin. Finally, meekness, that characteristic of being gentle but nonetheless strong, able in fact to have a mind dedicated to what is the distinction between right and wrong and though with a kind disposition to ever be firm in maintaining a character for what is right. Having looked at those three we shall set before our minds today the next three of these Beatitudes and look to discussing what else our Savior had to share with those of that day and, of course, by inspiration, us as well. Without further consideration of that point, let us begin to think about then what comes next, the fourth of these Beatitudes. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We've often, no doubt, each one given some thought to the rather brief but yet penetrating statement that's made on that occasion. I would invite your attention over the next few moments to a more concerted discussion of what that really is saying. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Our Savior was a master teacher in that He was able to often compare that which was so easily understood and known in a physical way, to teach dramatic and unforgettable truths spiritually. In fact, that's what the parables were all about. Thus, as he taught in Matthew 13 about sowing seed, we each understand what that is about, and yet from that he deduced these incredible truths spiritually that we need a fertile heart, not cumbered with the thorns of the ground, not like wayside soil and not stony ground either. In this particular case, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. We well understand what it means to hunger and to thirst. At least we can gain a sense of having been at some point very, very thirsty, perhaps at some other point very, very hungry, and we know how satisfying it was to have a cool glass of water, 
how satisfying it was to be able to sit at a table and enjoy a tasty morsel of a food that we so much enjoy. Here, of course, our Savior was not merely discussing physical thirst and physical hunger. As often as that's mentioned in the Bible, and I've listed a number of references for your study, in Jeremiah 38, we remember there, Jeremiah himself was in a dungeon, and it was said by others, that man is going to die from hunger if he doesn't have provision in the near future. On another occasion, do we not remember in John 4 verse 10, the nature there that Jesus and a woman, a Samaritan woman, discussed the thirst and how that Jesus said, had you asked of me, I could have given you water to quench your thirst forevermore. We notice again Jesus was lifting the discussion beyond mere physical water to a plane far higher than that. In addition to some of those things and those teachings, one last verse I couldn't help but bring back to our mind, though we had discussed it about six months ago. In Revelation 7, that great apostle of love, John, was given a vision of heaven itself, and part of what was experienced there was a place where there shall be no more thirst and no more hunger. We can long for a time when we can be a part of a place like that, but that demands obedience on our part, and that relates us back to where our Savior is leading us. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Our Savior qualified this discussion. He isn't talking about physical bread, nor is He talking about physical water. Those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. What is righteousness? What does it mean to hunger and thirst after it? May we revisit and let the Bible define for us what that is. The word righteousness means what is right in the sight of God. It means that which is right. The Bible defines that for us without any degree of ambiguity on our part. The psalmist was able to make this statement. In Psalm 119 verse 138, as he there defined what righteousness was in that age of the law of Moses, it was given in these words. Thy testimonies which thou hast commanded, they are faithful and they are righteous. He there directly thus stated that God's statements, His commandments, His declarations are righteous. 34 verses later, in verse 172 of that same chapter, He said, My tongue shall speak of thy word for all thy commandments are righteousness. There that English sentence is set before us in a way of equating the following two ideas. God's commandments on the one hand, righteousness on the other. They are directly equal to each other. There is hence no reason for questioning what is it that's righteous. It is the nature of God's Word and what it makes possible in our lives. Earlier in Deuteronomy, we also notice in verse 25, the closing verse of chapter 6, Early in the law of Moses, in that prescription, in that era, notice that Moses made this statement. Our righteousness comes from what God has commanded. If we do, if we observe all that He has commanded, that shall be our righteousness. Is it not then again easy for us to appreciate? Righteousness doesn't come by what Randy thinks. Righteousness does not come by what Randy's preference and disposition and mindset might well be. In fact, righteousness for any of us only comes by virtue of the Word of God and its implication and its application to our life. With that thought noted and with that thought in mind, 
Might we revisit this beatitude again? Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. You and I thus are urged to have a desire for what is right. Is it not interesting how often the Bible encourages that mindset of us? Maybe Job said it so wonderfully when in Job 23, 12, he made this statement. I have esteemed thy words more necessary than my food. For Job, though he was a person and of course a very difficult situation, his health had been taken from him, he'd lost his children, his wife had encouraged him to curse God and die, Job 2 verse 9. Nonetheless, he himself said, I treasure the word of God more so than my necessary food. That's a great encouragement and example to each of us, isn't it? To hunger and thirst after righteousness in that way, to appreciate that for necessary sustenance and eternal consideration, the Word of God is more important than the food we'll eat, perhaps for dinner in an hour from now. Might we say something else? Do we not notice another example, perhaps in the life of the New Testament characters themselves? I've listed for your consideration Paul himself in Philippians 3. In verse number 8 of that chapter, Paul made this statement, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung that I may win Christ. Paul, what was important to you? He said, I gave everything up in order to obtain the objective of knowing Jesus. You and I should appreciate that from the perspective of eternity, that too must still stand at highest priority. It must be objection number one. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. With knowing now more clearly that the pursuit of what is right in the sight of God, the pursuit of what is so powerful in His regard, might we now notice what's the promise? The promise takes this form. For they shall be filled. I noted a moment ago that there are times when a person may feel a sense of hunger and a person may feel a sense of thirst. We've each no doubt been in a situation where it was not possible at that time to satisfy that desire. Maybe the water fountain was such that it would not be possible to gain access to it for an hour, maybe two. Maybe the next time for a meal was five or six hours distant. Notice here Jesus says we can rest assured that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. The Greek verb literally takes this form. The English says it is shall be filled. The literal meaning is shall eat to the full. That is, they won't just have a taste of what they desire. They won't just have a small morsel of it. They will have a table spread full of the righteousness which they desire and shall partake of it to the, to the fullest. Aren't the promises of God bountiful and liberal in what they make possible for us? Some might well say they are lavish in what they make possible for you and me. They shall be filled. I would encourage each of us, though, to consider that merely sitting around and wishing that that be the case will not bring it to fruition. You and I could pray for a lifetime. God, grant me righteousness. Bring me the such that I may hunger and thirst for it. But if we never invest any effort on our part to bring that to fruition, we shouldn't expect it to be so. 
Isn't that pattern in the same way that we read in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10? If a man will not work, neither let him eat. But the Bible does not then encourage us in terms of sitting at the table with our spoon in our hand ready to eat and never making any preparation for the provision of the food. We're to work, we're to labor in the effort of bringing that to our table. And so too it is spiritually. We should avail ourselves of the Word of God and study it with diligence. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Those famous words of verse 15 of 2 Timothy 2. Might we remember that that word study means to give diligence. The Greek force of that verb has all the meaning of give diligence, with the object being to show oneself approved to God. As we thus seek to give diligence and study, our desire must ever be thus to be right, to hunger and thirst for that which is right. The replacement thus of what God has stated with man's ideas is a foolish and internally dangerous thing. We read in Matthew 15, of course, that there shall come a time when God will plant up that which has not, He has not planted we should ever desire then to be a part of that which He has authorized, sanctioned, and ordained. I've listed another text for your thinking, being of course in Psalm 119, verse 160. Also found in the heart of that longest chapter in the Old Testament, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. That phrase, Thy word is true from the beginning, means the following, the sum of thy word is truth. When you and I thus hunger and thirst for righteousness, we shall not be content to take one text, divorce it from all the others, and use that to teach what other texts do not support. We must take all of what God has said. It's the sum, S-U-M, not S-O-M-E, but S-U-M, the sum of thy word is truth. That means we take one part, properly add it to the discussions from another, and reach the truth on what God has revealed. Thus, we must not be haphazard in our desire for righteousness. I've likened it in the very last way to the following. How would you and I view or describe a person who, though he is hungry, he takes a cookbook and happily reads these wonderful recipes? but chooses not to go to the store and gather the necessary ingredients, chooses not to invest the effort and time to put them together to provide what is being described, could you really say that person's that hungry if he isn't willing to go to that effort to prepare what is being described? Is it not the same spiritually? How hungry is a person if he or she does not open the Word of God, refusing always to take simply one verse, but rather to peruse it, with earnestness, with love, and with diligence, ever desiring to know truly what God has revealed. That, in a very simple, simple way, is perhaps a good mental image of what's before us. Do you and I hunger and thirst after righteousness? Is that something that stands as priority number one in our life? We must hunger for it, desire it, seek for it diligently. For Jesus says, those who are so shall be filled. As we've looked at that beatitude, in a way it's prepared us for the fifth one. Let us consider it as well, also found, of course, in this same place. In Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the merciful. 
for they shall obtain mercy. We see directly a mention of this word merciful. And what does that mean? It's always important as we study the Word of God to appreciate the force of the words themselves and then to place them together and look at the sentences that they are forming. Blessed are the merciful. That word means merciful or compassionate or sympathetic. It directly leads us to appreciate that a disposition of heart, a kind of attitude is under discussion. I've noted for you a fact that I found a bit interesting. As often as we may think that the word merciful occurs in the Word of God, this Greek word, it is not so. It occurs only about 20 times in the entirety of Old and New Testament. And almost without exception, it is used as a descriptive of God Himself. How that He in some way acted mercifully. How that He, by His choices and His acts toward the human family, has been merciful. I've listed just a few of the passages that I'd invite your attention to at, at your study this week. Psalm 111 verse 4, Jeremiah 3 verse 12, Hebrews 2 verse 17. All of them are used as descriptors of either God or Jesus Christ. With that idea of merciful in our mind, it isn't difficult to imagine the grandest of ways that He has shown His mercy. We, of course, know that when He looked upon the human family, you and I and all individuals were lost and undone. For Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in that place, we were indeed shameful, being covered in sin. We lie down in our shame and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. The closing verse of Jeremiah chapter 3. With that description though, God looked upon us in majestic mercy and in marvelous love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, to go from being in a position of perishment to everlasting life through virtue of the blood of the blessed Son of God. It is no wonder then that to the Roman congregation Paul could make this description. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. As he begins that refrain, he has already asserted that in due time, in the character of time, God sent his Son to do for us what we never could have done for ourselves. But Paul isn't finished, for he goes on to say, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Words for you and me shall always fail to fully amplify the magnitude of that refrain. That though you and I were ungodly, that though you and I were enemies, that though you and I were undeserving, Nonetheless, in mercy, He sent His Son to die for us. If that's the kind of idea behind the concept of mercy, as it appears in this fifth beatitude, what might that be saying on the part of you and me? God, of course, does not directly demand that you and I go to a cross like Jesus did. But could not Jesus be making this kind of statement? What did you and I need most? Salvation from sin. As we look about us in the world and see other men and women, boys and girls, who are in need of various things, perhaps some of them physical in character, 
Jesus is asserting that you and I also must have a compassionate and tender heart, able and ready to supply those needs when we're of a position of being able to do so. A compassionate spirit, a tender heart. I've listed some other passages for your consideration toward that end. In Deuteronomy 5, verse number, or rather Deuteronomy 15, verse number 7, it was a requirement under the law of Moses that when an Israelite, a Hebrew, if you will, came to appreciate that a fellow Israelite was in need physically, it was a requirement that he supply that to the point he could be at food or other necessary arrangements in life. In 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18, we remember that question that the apostle of love asked. He asked it in these words, Behold, if any of you do appreciate or see his brother in need and shut up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? In essence, John asks, that individual who, by recognition and awareness, knows that his brother has need, but yet does not, and willfully chooses not to open his bowels of compassion, the attitude of mercy to him, does the love of God dwell in that person? To ask that question, of course, is to answer it. For that reason, in the next verse, he says, Behold, let us not love in word and in tongue, but rather in deed and in action. We are thus to allow that tender spirit that's within us to work forward to bringing forth to others by the compassion and mercy of our spirit the nature of what we're able to accomplish. And note the promise. What does he say? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The promise is ever so wonderful. When you and I exhibit thus that tender attitude and tender spirit, is it not far more likely that others will behave in a similar way toward us? That when you and I find ourselves in need, others will be able and be more happy to share what you and I are in need of? I make that statement because it has an interesting principle related to God's disposition toward us. To be merciful has at least in part the attitude of forgiveness within it. Consider this with me. What is necessary in order for God to forgive you and me? In Matthew 6 verses 14 and 15 we read that in order for God to forgive us, we must forgive others who have trespassed against us. What if you and I then refuse in mercy, without mercy if you will, to forgive someone who asks us to forgive them? The Bible says God will not forgive us. Thus God extends the mercy of forgiveness to us when we extend that mercy toward others. We must thus not exhibit that attitude of coldness and unwillingness to forgive but rather must ever be happy and joyous over the thought that a person who has wronged us has beseeched us to forgive that person. It is a reconciliation of those two individuals. It is, if you will, a returning to a former state of a sense of peacefulness and happiness. Forgiveness. If we expect God to forgive us, we must forgive others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The attitude of mercy as I close that sheet is such that it perhaps begs us to think of Ephesians 4.32. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. God forgave us when we were sinners. 
As we noted in the Roman letter, he forgave us when we were God's enemies, and yet Paul beseeched the Ephesians, be kind, be tenderhearted, be forgiving, just as God forgave you. That is a rather high demand of us, isn't it? But God doesn't demand the impossible, and we can rest assured we would be able to fulfill that requirement found in the Word of God. Are you and I as merciful as we can be? In a world that so often is hostile and defensive, in a world that so often is selfish and self-seeking, we are called upon to be considerate of others, kindness in our disposition toward them, tender-hearted and forgiving when they ask of us. May I suggest that fifth beatitude leads us to a sixth one. Perhaps this is one of the favorites of many of us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To discuss purity in heart, to discuss those that shall see God, reminds us of what it means to be pure in heart. Let's take an interesting but somewhat brief journey in the time we have remaining and visit what it means to say, Blessed are the pure in heart. The word pure means to be clean. It means, in fact, to be free from guilt. It means to be innocent. Blessed thus are the pure in heart, the innocent in spirit. All these discussions and ideas set a rather simple idea before us. And I've placed that idea in the following words. The idea is to be of a clean heart, to be free from the violation or transgression due to a conscience that's been stained by doing that which offends it, to be free from the guilt of sin and that which accords to it. Blessed are the pure in heart. In the days when our Savior walked in the flesh on earth, there was a tremendous struggle in the mind of very many who heard Him about what it was that was purity. They thought the washing of hands was often enough, Matthew 15. Jesus so strongly said, I'm telling you, you can wash your hands all year if you want to. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles a man. There are still some who haven't learned that lesson in our world, isn't there? May you and I learn that blessed are the pure, but the Lord didn't stop there. He didn't say pure of hands. He said pure in heart. And what is the status of my heart and yours? Is that heart pure? Is it innocent? Is it clean? In fact, one could discuss at length all the things that that involves. There are some passages that I wish to read, found primarily in the Psalms. Would you revisit with me the 15th Psalm? This psalm is not terribly lengthy. I'd invite us to read all six verses of it. Rather, all five verses of it. Psalm 15, verses 1 through 5. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor in whose eyes a vile person is contemned. But he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own herd and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. In Proverbs 24, beginning in verse 3, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the, Lord, from the God of his salvation. 
on those two occasions, we've noticed a remarkable similarity. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? The psalmist answered, that person with clean hands and a pure heart. And we again observe very easily that he didn't mean literally with the hands free from dirt. He meant the person who, by virtue of his heart and spirit, is innocent, pure and clean. That's the person that shall find pleasure and satisfaction and approval before the God of heaven. It goes without saying that that idea in our world is something that Satan opposes with all the force and strength possible. And doesn't he have a myriad of ways to tarnish and mar the heart? There's language, profane and impure speech, places that one can go in Cookville, Tennessee, though it still in many ways is a small town compared to many, places where the filthiness and slut of this world is seen with remarkable clarity. On the job site, there's all kinds of things encouraged of us. The Internet's full of pornography. You name it. Blessed are the pure in heart, my friend, Jesus said. You and I thus should desire, and in fact strongly so, to distance ourselves from all of that to the extent we can. Now, at all times, it's not going to be possible to not be faced with it. For you and I must work with people who seem to find joy in the filthiest language. They seem to find pleasure in the nude scenes of the world and the sexual innuendos of it. Doesn't mean we have to approve it. And it doesn't mean that we can't voice an opposition to it and encourage them that at least we don't appreciate it. Doesn't mean that in other things in our life we can't illustrate that we do have many choices. When the TV pictures come on, we can turn the channel. We can turn it off. When the radio comes on with songs that are ungodly, we can change the station or turn it off as well. We do have choices in many ways. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Some of the things also on that sheet to be seen is that we must not try to fool ourselves. The Corinthian congregation found themselves in that position. Paul, in fact, directly told them, you can't observe the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils at the same time. You can't be the friend of the devil and the friend of the Savior at the same time. Thus, we must make choices. And those choices often will displease others. It will cause others to have an insult of us. But so be it. Which is greater and which is more needful to be right in their eyes and to do that which they find pleasing or to be right in the sight of our Heavenly Father? Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. The famous quote of 1 Corinthians 15.33. You might notice at the bottom of that screen, the text in 2 Corinthians 6 helps us see that we must not be the friend of Belial and try to co keep communion with Jesus at the same time. To say all that is to say that there is a dramatic promise with this beatitude. This person shall see God. What a fabulous goal it is to be pure in heart. Each of us should desire that with longing character. We should wish it of our children. We should also, of course, seek it, not just by words, but by the actions of our life. A question that often comes before us, and the religious world, sadly, is much confused about it. How does one attain purity in heart? Is it enough to pray for it? Is it enough to think good thoughts about it? Is it enough to approach a given person and beseech his prayer on my behalf that I might be pure in heart? You and I do not of our own nature have answer to that, but God's Word does. 
God tells us what's required. Listen to some of the passages. In 1 Peter 1, 22, Seeing ye have purified your heart through obedience to the faith unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another fervently. What was that, Peter? Seeing ye have purified your heart. Sounds like a clean heart, doesn't it? Sounds like a pure heart. How was that obtained? Through obedience unto the truth. Let's try another one. Romans 6, verse 16. In that inspired writing to the Roman congregation, Paul said, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed the, from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. What was that, Paul? The Romans were servants of sin at one point. Paul was thankful they no longer were. What was the change point? When they obeyed the doctrine delivered to them. Make no mistake about it. Prayer alone does not make my heart clean. Jesus said, you're clean through the words I have spoken you, John 15, 3. Have you obeyed the word of the Lord this morning? This sixth beatitude encourages us to appreciate the grandness of a pure heart, but that isn't obtained by wishing for it. It isn't obtained by accident. It's obtained by obedience of the truth. And of course, that faithful obedience is not just a one-time matter at the time of obedience in baptism. It's a lifetime of faithful living, Revelation 2.10. He that endureth to the end shall be saved, Matthew 10.22. Those kinds of words lead us to the ending point of that screen. Purity in heart is such a dramatic thought. It brings a smile to our face to recognize its existence. Might we also notice, the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9. And is it not the case that in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Don't just trust your heart and your feelings and your emotions. Those things are, of course, important, but they are not the guideposts. They do not set the boundaries for the conscience in terms of ultimate satisfaction to God. Are you pure in heart today? We can conclude this lesson, and this beatitude concludes it so well in a way, far better than I myself could ever have chosen to do it. We each can ask ourselves, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Are you pure in heart? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you display mercy toward others? If you can't answer yes to these things, you need to make an obedience in a public way to the call of the gospel. Jesus is calling you today. If your heart isn't clean and pure, make it so. And it's not you that does that, but it's God through obedience to His gospel, the gospel of His Son. If we could aid you in a public way in that obedience today, we'd be honored to do it. In fact, it would be a joyously and overwhelmingly powerful day throughout the rest of your life on into eternity. If there would be one or more within the sound of my voice that would have a desire to obey publicly, either as an alien sinner and in need of the initial confession and baptism, or one who needs to rededicate your life to make your heart pure, would you not let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?